Hello and welcome to the Max Communications 2020 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Brian Riddle, former Chief Librarian for the Royal Aeronautical Society. Hi Brian, would you like to introduce yourself and talk, us, talk to us about what you do at the Aeronautical Society? Yeah, so basically I worked with um, the library for the past 36 years. Uh, having originally joined the society staff back in August 1984, uh, so I'm actually probably the longest-serving member of the staff that was that was left um, up till now. The society is the oldest aeronautical society in the world. It was originally formed on January the 12th, 1866, as the Aeronautical Society of Great Britain. Bearing in mind that in the time that the society was formed, the only way that uh, man could travel through the air was by balloon and later airship. Uh, and the idea of people traveling through the air for what was known then known as mechanical flying machines was just a, a daydream. Um, so the people who formed the society were probably regarded as almost as eccentrics and so on. Uh, but o- it's over the, over the 150 years or so that passed since the society was formed. Uh, obviously we've, uh, gone leaps and bounds uh, so to the extent that you could say that if say somebody was born in 1900 um, and lived to their mid-70s they would have witnessed uh, the early pioneering flights of the Wright brothers uh, seen the English Channel crossed by Blario lived through two world wars and been around to see the last of the Apollo missions to the moon so we've been a period of 75 years in the 20th century. Aviation and aerospace, you know, went to all directions and the society went with it. So basically the, the society's library um, dates back to the origins of the society. So at the very beginnings, they always wanted books in the library to form a library and not just the library material in the English language. It was much material from all over. So a lot of the early books that we had were in the French language. These were recorded in the first annual reports. And thereafter, the society grew. Uh, and we kicked on a royal charter in 1918 uh, from George V. And they became the Royal Aeronautical Society. So we're the only royal institution in what's known as the Engineering Council and thereby the society has grown and it reflects the whole development of aviation literally from um, students who are studying aeronautical aerospace engineering right through to captains of industry who are head of leading aircraft manufacturers and the library covers everything that's associated with aviation and aerospace anything that flies through the air from the outer atmosphere from one of the finest early ballooning collections in the world through to space probes and the distant planets, and both, so it could be both for atmospheric flight and flight through outer space. And it's not just the kind of manufacturers, how an aircraft is designed, the aerodynamics, the structures, the materials, the instrumentation, avionics, go on board it, on the technical side, you have the operators, civil and military operators of aircraft. And then also you have other areas like um, aviation law, human factors, aerospace medicine, and so on. So that's like studying the effects of traveling through the air 
on a pile of some passenger and so on. So that gives you an idea of the wide range of subjects we cover. Um, and the library has to reflect all these and all these um, specialist interests that I described are often reflected in specialist groups within the Royal Aeronautical Society. So the society is un un unusual in the sense that it's a kind of multidisciplinary society. So we do cover everything from very technical people to people like studying air law or aviation medicine. Um, and also it's a nominated body of the engineering council, which basically means that uh, anyone become, can become like a chartered engineer or a corporate engineer, a technical engineer and so on through the Royal Aeronautical Society. So that's, an, we basically have three roles. One as a learned society, two as a professional engineering body. And the third role is that we actually register charity as well. Um, so the library is one of the ace cards that the society can, can play when it, terms of what is called public benefits, which means that uh, you have to demonstrate that what you do is it benefits the wider populace. And we, the society does this in numerous ways. One, uh, we have a very active um, educational program uh, and careers program from the Cool Aeronautics uh, series of uh, where, where they go out to schools and talk about aviation aerospace to young school children. There's an online Amy's Aviation video service educational programs. Uh, then we have the numerous kind of lectures and so on, which in normal non-pandemic times occurring all around the world. Uh, there's about like normally about 400 lectures we organize all around the world from different branches, divisions that we have. And then the library, which is the largest kind of aeronautical aviation collection of its kind, certainly in the UK, won the world's major collections probably the oldest aeronautical collection in the world. And in fact, anyone uh, from around the world can use it. So it's not just restricted to uh, members access. Anyone can, can literally use it, uh, either by personal visit, phone, email, or letter inquiry. Where is the library based then? The library, the main library is based at uh, Farnborough, which uh, in Hampshire, which for many years was center of um, aeronautical research and development in the UK. It's where what was originally known as the Bloom Factory, which became evolved into the Royal Aircraft Factory, evolved into the Royal Aircraft Establishment, was based for many, many years uh, until it was wound up as effectively one of the um, in the 1990s as one of the kind of conservative quangos uh, that was at the conservative party at the time believed were you know, serving no purpose, although it was actually a major aeronautical research institution. And the library is actually on the site of one of the old um, REE buildings. It's located in what was known as the uh, space um, uh, building. Uh, and uh, all these kind of what's left of the REE site, a lot of that was kind of the buildings have gone, been demolished, but there are a few that are listed because of their historical importance. So the library is literally located right next to what's known as the 24-foot wind tunnel building, which is rather appropriate because um, the first wind tunnel in the world was developed in 1871 under the auspices of what was then the Aeronautical Society of Britain. 
the heritage site. Yes, yeah. So the within what is, is now known as Farnborough Business Park, um, there's which is basically on the site of the old REE, which was you know, um, in the centre of the business park. You have the main Farnborough Airport, which was the old uh, flying field. It's now been developed was developed by the TAG Group into a leading business airport in Europe. And then around the airport, you still have um, major buildings like um, the headquarters of BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, um, Flight Safety International, and so on. Uh, and the library is just literally on the other side of the airport in um, a building called the Hub. And it's <clears throat> where we share offices with all kinds of other companies, not necessarily related to aviation, but the library has an extensive area on the ground floor of that building which accommodates the library and archives. Do you find you have different users um, that you get from on-site visits than you do from online visits? Well, you know, the, the, the beauty of online is that um, the email is that people can email you inquiries from all around the world. And um, because the library is open to all, to anyone who can use us, we, we literally get all kinds of inquiries from people you know, looking for a specific document or report to support their ongoing research, either work-wise or private research they're doing on a piece of aviation history, to um, we get, get a lot of family history type inquiries. For example, they'll say, oh, great uncle Fred flew in the First World War, the Royal Flying Corps, or people might find an old uh, membership certificate up in the loft and wondering why uh, why was their relation, father, uncle, or whatever, a member of the Aeronautical Society. Or they might find, they believe that he worked in the aircraft industry at some period, did we have any records, and so on. So there's a lot of that kind of inquiries that go on. Um, but yeah, the inquiries can range from, uh, you know, literally people working on their own research, or they're researching about it, individual they're interested in or they want to find a bit more some people like writing their their memoirs and just want to find out more details about a particular incident they recall but not enough detail to, for it to go into print or you get people we get quite a few people kind of researching books in the library uh, and so on uh, we have like a resident researcher peter reese who uh, is now researching the fourth book um that he's you know he's new, using the library resources so he's there most days, um, so on. So it, it really can vary um, who uses the library, the, the variety of it and the way the library can be used is one of the you know, the attractions of it. It's such a huge collection, but also at the same time, who, there's only so much you can do for people um, you know, online, but at the same time, we try and um, enhance that experience. So in recent years, we've done a whole series of digital projects where using today's technology we've digitalized various parts of the collections um, so so that they can be shared online so people so we've got various ones of these ones of these is the um, they all start aerosociety.com so aerosociety.com stroke prints and posters is where we have now over 13,000 images online which uh, people can view uh, via the Mary Evans Picture Library website. 
and they, you know, there's no compulsion to buy, but if they want to buy a particular image, um, either as a poster or as a jigsaw or whatever, or also want to commercially license that for a, a publication or a documentary, then Mary and the Picture Library handle all those kind of inquiries. But it's for us, it's a way of shop window of showing all kinds of things that we have in our collection. But you started off with um, over about 400 of our early ballooning lithographs of the 18th, 19th century uh, and uh, aviation posters in the 20s and 30s and just mushroomed from there with thousands upon thousands of photographs from our collection that we've added. The other website uh, we have is, and the one is aerosociety.com stroke heritage. Held in the library are all kinds of key documents that were basically record the early stepping stones to flight. From the original notebooks of Sir George Cayley. Now, Cayley uh, undertook uh, research into the possibility of mechanical flight about 100 years from the Wright brothers. Um, so, he was working in the early 1800s, and he's, if you look at any standard history of aviation, Cayley's regarded as the father of aeronautics. So, Cayley's notebooks are one of the, the milestones that you can view online via the website alongside the, you know, the drawings of Percy Yorkshire, Lawrence Hargrave, Henson Stringfellow, and so on. Um, and, you know, it's a real kind of very key document. There's also, which, you know, the beautiful thing where you can click on, you know, a detailed view and you get the magnifying glass and you can really see something really sharp focus close up. Uh, another website that we've done is aerosociety.com stroke podcast. Basically, how that began was that in 1960, um, the Aeronautical Society uh, built a lecture theatre uh, at the back of its headquarters, where it still has at uh, Forehampton Place, just off just by Hyde Park Corner. Uh, and they got funding to build a lecture theatre, which they didn't have, have up to that time, uh, on the, at the back of the building, uh, basically where Park Lane runs through. Um, so, uh, and that was lecture theatre was opened in 1960 and it's still used and it's now been all modernised. You know, the Bill Boeing lecture theatre sponsorship. And the historical group society uh, was formed in 1959. So when the lecture theatre opened in 1960, it was a relatively new group. And they had the foresight to invite uh, to speak to the society as many as the early pioneers of the early days, um, bearing in mind you're talking about 1950, about just almost like 50 years after the very first flight in this country, and talk about their experiences. And not only did they get them to, to speak, um, but um, they also had the foresight to make recordings of these on old magnetic mutual reel tapes or whatever. And a few years ago, we basically in 2017, um, we launched the uh, National Aerospace Science Sound Archive. We had funding to digitalize all these recordings. As well, we also were given a set of MP3 recordings of interviews with more modern test pilots that were presented to us by a member of the society who died a few years ago called Rodney Giesler. Uh, and Rodney was uh, a volunteer for the Imperial War Museum and did interviews of people's experiences in war um, not really kind of on the military side, but civilians and so on. But at the same time, he also somehow got access to all these leading test pilots, uh, and he recorded in extended interviews with them. I mean, these are not like 
10-minute interviews. These are interviews that go on for 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half, or whatever. And so you have people like you know, Chuck Yeager, who was the first man to uh, fly beyond the speed of sound in the Bell X-1 in 1947. And, you know, in talking their own words of their experiences. So I thought, well, there's an opportunity to create uh, an archive by combining Rodney's recordings with our own magnetic reel-to-reel tapes, which we had over a hundred of these, these recordings going back over the years. And you got funding, digitalized the whole lot. And then we've gradually been putting them out. Um, but before we put them out, bearing in mind that these lectures were originally done to an audience, say about 100, 250 people. Now you have to be able to kind of share that recording with the whole world. Ideally, you should try and track down the descendants uh, if there are any of these speakers to make sure that they're um, happy with, with, um, with what we're doing. And so literally at the same time as putting these recordings out, uh, we've had a like undertook a worldwide search um, trying to track down the descendants of these people. Um, and I still got about like 50 odd names to track down, but a good many we have found down, uh, found. And, uh, you know, the reactions we get from the relatives is really quite lovely. You know, one of them replied, you know, it's, it's so lovely to hear our father sound so young again. Because bearing in mind, these people often were recorded towards the end of their life. Um, and, um, the, you know, they might, you know, the children might have never heard their fathers, um, talk about their early days and so on. And so, you know, that's been quite nice to do that and get so many positive feedbacks from around the world. Our latest um, website launched just at the end of May, 2020 this year. And that's aerosociety.com stroke movies, M-O-V-I-E-S movies. And that's where we've put out, uh, I made available online, a whole series of films uh, have not been seen for many, many years. Basically, uh, we had over, probably over 100 plus film canisters uh, stored at London headquarters, which had not been seen for probably 50, 60 years. Some of them we knew roughly what they were. There was a label on some of the cans. Um, a lot of them didn't have labels, so it's a bit like a lucky dip. And there were various gauges, millimeter, 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter gauges. So again, we got funding to digitalize the collection. And then I uh, spent a long time going through all these films, um, deciding which ones were of interest historically. And then once you've done that, done that process, then arranging again, going around the world, trying to find permissions who, who actually, if there are any, uh, we sorted out for the society and able to release these films. So that game has been like a global search because the problem is, you know, the aircraft industry has changed so much since these films were done. So a lot of these companies never, no longer exist. And then you've got to track down who owns the nose and so on. So in the end, you end up with like a, a, a you know, end up in contact with Lockheed Martin, Boeing, KO, Shell, you know, Sikorsky Film Archives and so on. And again, um, you know, it's again a way we can, uh, you know, put films out. Um, and share our archives to the rest of the world. I mean, the, the nicest one of those, I think, is a film that, they, you know, that is funny. It's just a short reeler, 20 minutes uh, film, uh, black and white. And it, when you sh 
look at it, he just said at the beginning, American transports prepared for Donald W. Douglas. Um, Donald W. Douglas was one leading American aviation industrialist, founded the Douglas Aircraft Company. And, but when you look at the film, there's hardly any Douglas aircraft features at all until it gets the second reel. Uh, it's all about like uh, who's who of aviation and so on at, at, at the time. You know, there's designs of Fokker and Lockheed and you know, Boeing and Sikorsky and Martin. And you think, why, why is Douglas doing this? Why, you know, and in a way it's prepared for Donald Douglas. It was like a private film. And then I remembered that in the library, we had assisted a lady called Julie Fellucci, who was researching a biography of Donald Douglas. And I contacted her and she contacted the family. Uh, and they had no knowledge of the films. But then I remembered that what Julie was particularly interested in was when Douglas came to the society in 1935 to give what was then known as the Wilbur Wright Lecture. And then looking at the journal account at the time, uh, it says, well, they had a very distinguished gathering for the lecture, which was held at the Science Museum. The lecture didn't start till 9.15, um, because before that they had the banquet, and Douglas gave this lecture about you know, uh, American you know, airliner air design. And then at the end it says, uh, Mr. Douglas then showed a film, and he describes, he described the first frames of this film. And I realized that what was being described was the very film that we had. So in other words, that this film had sat in London for over eight decades, well over 80 years, unwatched, um, and now it can be shared with the world. So I, I, that's one of my kind of favorite stories about the, about the collection in recent years. And it's just a way of like bringing these things back to life. So, you know, that's all on top of the, the normal kind of online web-based catalog and so on. That's amazing. That's really nice that there's such personal touches in this library. Yeah, well, the, the library is is basically an amalgam of all kinds of collections over the years. I mean, the library itself um, acquires books anyway, new books coming out. Um, and we do this. Uh, it's a very unusual library in the sense that we, you know, I've never really had a budget all the years I worked for the society to buy books uh, because the books we receive, we get about 150, 200 new books a year covering kind of aviation, aerospace, all different areas I've discussed. And they've um, sent to the society by publishers um, as for reviews in our publications. The society has two pub monthly publications, a monthly journal called Aerospace which goes out to all our members as, around the world as part of their subscription. And a technical journal called the Aeronautical Journal, which is since 2016, has been published in conjunction with Cambridge University Press. And both of those publications have book review pages, but because of the nature of the publications, the more practical kind of books on kind of airline management, safety, operation, aviation, and so on, human factors get reviewed in aerospace, more technical books on aerodynamics, structures, materials, um, power plant design, missile design, or whatever, get reviewed in the, in, in the journal. So you have two different sets, of, really two different sets of reviewers. And a lot of my work was basically trying to arrange, one, get the books in the first place, two, arrange for somebody to, to review a book. 
uh, and quite often, some particularly with the journal ones, the, the, the works were kind of so specialised that only if you had literally a handful of people who probably could review the book to to your know, satisfaction. And like any things in, in life, just getting somebody who had the knowledge, time, and enthusiasm to do the task. Often people had may have had the knowledge, but they don't have necessarily have the time, or they might have the knowledge and the time, but not to have the enthusiasm. So you've got to find somebody who does a combination of all three, which is not necessarily that easy in life. So in addition to all the new books coming in, um, the libraries can continually receiving uh, or being offered collections by individuals, companies, organizations um, uh, to find basic, and the, although the National Aerospace Library um, implies that we get some kind of government public money, it's not that, it's the, the name that's created by one of our past chief, chief executives when they, the move to Farnborough took place just over 10 years ago. Uh, but it has been, the library as such, the Library Society has been treated as an unofficial um, depository uh, for aviation material for, for many years. And so if you, the whole touch of the library is kind of an amalgam of all different kinds of individual private collections uh, that have been built over the years. And then literally a whole collection has been presented to us to preserve them uh, for the society. So. In, during the 1940s, in particular, there seemed to be quite a number of significant collections came to us. I think it's possibly because so much had been lost during the, the World War II um, that people, were, for whatever's left, we ought to find a good home for it. So during that period, we uh, acquired the Cuthbert Hodgson collection, which is one of the finest collections of early aeronautical ballooning material in the world. And that covers not only um, aeronautical books, but literally hundreds and hundreds of lithographic prints that were issued during the time, and also fabrics of some of the earliest balloons, uh, all of which we've had you know, restored in recent years. The, there was the George Cayley notebooks put on permanent loan for the society for the Cayley family descendants. We acquired the Henson and Stringfellow aerial steam carriage patterns, which you can see online at heritage.com heritage and so on. Um, and you know, this is just some of the whole, you know, we had aeronautical medals collection. That was another one, an unusual collection that came to us at that time. Literally medallions that were issued from the very first balloon flight, commemorative tokens and so on. So it's not like a library of just books and journals and papers and technical reports, but there's all kinds of manuscripts. We have over 110 letters from Wilbur Orban, this uh, just Catherine Wright, uh, that were written to early members of the society. Um, if you want to see the letters that society, these were in response to letters early on society wrote to the Wright brothers. Um, and it's, you know, there's a kind of myth that the Wright brothers were quite secretive about, about their things, but they were quite open in the letters that they wrote to society. But if you want to see um, the letters that the members wrote to the Wrights, you have to go to the Library of Congress in Washington. We, I think, have the more interesting part of the correspondence we have the replies from the Wrights. Um, and in 2003, we published that as a Letters of the Wright Brothers book. You know, the whole text of all the letters in conjunction with the centenary of the Wright Brothers flight on December 17, 1903. Uh, and so you have like letters, you have balloon fabrics, you have ballooning lithographs, you have a great collection of airline posters of air shows and airlines in the 20s and 30s. And uh, you have recordings, you have films, and so on. So anything like aviation, pounds of cigarette card albums, Anything that's sort of like has an aviation theme or aviation has been recorded in or flight, 
then there's a good chance that you know, we, we have a, a representative of it in the, in the library's archive. I do highly recommend checking out your website. Um, there's lots of really nice art prints and stuff like that. But actually, my favourite was the um, the George Cayley um, school jotter with his doodle. Oh yes, yeah, that's 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 interesting because um, uh, basically, as I say, Cayley was the um, first man really to t study the possibility of a heavier air. Uh, flying machine was it possible? Was bear in mind, Cayley was writing at the time, and it basically the, the man for a generations who had this aspirations to fly, and you know, um, drawings are made and models are made, but the man didn't really get the technology to fly until 1783, and that's by a balloon. The balloon was born in France, and because of the um, kind of concerns about what would happen to man if he, if he started to fly through the air. They had no idea. They would he would man go bang, explode, pop. They had no idea. But the test aeronauts were not uh, human beings; they were animals. So the first aeronauts were actually um, a cockerel, sheep, and a duck. And because they went up in a Montgolfier balloon in 1783, and they came down, and the animals were okay for okay for man to go up. And then they, uh, but they didn't go mad. So the first flights were. Um, you know, a uh, tethered fly, the, the balloon was a like, table, winch so far up, and then came down, as the man on board was okay. And then you aerial fly first takes off really on November 21st, 1783, and that's with the untethered balloon voyage of Pilata uh, de Rossi and the Marcus d'Alland. So, and that was the first pilot and passenger to make an aerial voyage in human history. And in our fabrics collection, what we have actually have is quite a large fabric from that original balloon um, and so on. And so when I used to do kind of like the show and tell talks to people, I brought that out and tell people, well, actually what you're looking at is kind of um, older than the American constitution and predates the French revolution. It's what made them sort of like stand back and realize that actually there was a piece of history there. So Cayley was kind of writing, uh, he was, based in Yorkshire, um, he was a bit like the, I would call the Benjamin Franklin of his time, like Franklin who had various scientific interests and set up liter you know, literary societies and libraries and printing, uh, printing presses and so on, but also had an interest in science. Uh, Cayley was like the next generation, but based in England. He was an MP, uh, he was also interested in the safety of, of um, he designed an artificial hand because one of his workmen lost a hand. So he designed this quite advanced prosthetic mechanical hand for him. Uh, he was concerned about the number of people being lost at sea. So he designed a self-fighting lifeboat. He was also concerned about safety in railway carriages. But what he's also best known is, is his aeronautics. And in his own lifetime, Haley published very few papers, uh, journals and so on, or Nicholson's journal, I think it was, yeah. And uh, these... Uh, you know, had a, had a limited audience, um, but most of his work was carried on in his own kind of um, private uh, kind of like workshop at Brompton. Uh, and the, you know, but he, what he was, Katie was looking at was basically trying to establish he, what, if a, mat, if a machine could fly, but maybe an air, what would he need to be? And he worked out basically the aerodynamic shape and the propulsion system. He realized he would have to fly it up a certain aerodynamic shape. 
would need to have a certain proportion to get the system to get it off the ground, and once in the air, it'd have to have certain control surfaces to keep it stable and stop it you know, crashing down immediately. And all this he did on his own work, he just basically adapted a whirling arm, which was originally designed and used by, say, Benjamin Robbins in the 1640s for study of ballistics, how projectiles move through the air. Cayley adapted that to basically looking at, um, say, for example, the wing shape, what wing shape would give the most maximum lift on flying machine. And he did this by, say, studying a heron's wing. And so if you look at the Cayley notebooks, they're also online. Um, you'll see there's one, I think one volume is called C or, or whatever. You'll see that he basically, he studies the heron's wing and then like Da Vinci, he steps back, looks at the anatomy of it, looks at the shape of the wing and effectively creates uh, like a curved shape, which people today studying biophysical aerodynamics would recognize the heron concept. And Cayley was doing this 100 years, say, before the Wrights doing their own experiments. Now, the, the exercise book you mentioned, that for years was like, you know, seen as a, a bit of a, like a, um, a, an accessory to the main notebooks. Uh, but then the, the last major biography of Cayley was written by a chap named, uh, his name was Richard Dyde, D-Y-D-E. But unfortunately, he died, he, he did pass away a few years ago. And he wrote under the pseudonym of Richard D for some reason. But uh, Richard, in his biography, um, basically identifies that if you look at the Cayley's like school exercise book, and like any kind of school exercise book, it's like, yeah, the, the doodles. I mean, there's all kinds of doodles over the cover. But if you look closely, there are literally early flying machines with Cayley's doodle on there. And that's Cayley's earliest representation of a flying machine. So that's their significance. And in 2017, the notebook, uh, that the, the, the original kind of exercise book of Cayley was loaned to the, what was then known as the Great Exhibition of the North uh, as part of the, the, the major exhibition. So it's, it displayed alongside a replica of one of Cayley's gliders that had been loaned from the Yorkshire Air Museum. Amazing. Yes, but check those out online. Uh, it's great that you have those resources available for people who can't visit the site. Yeah, I mean, the idea is, with, is just to make everything available uh, as much as you can and increasingly, you know, if we link all those into the, the web-based catalogue as we, as we put them online, so people can, for example, you know, will type in, um, say, Imperial Airways and not only will they see that we've got, you know, various publications about Imperial Airways, which was the main airline of the 1920s and 30s that connected the British Empire uh, to from kind of all the way from uh, you know, Australia right across to you know, Europe and so on and down to Africa uh, is that you'll see not only we have their kind of their journal we have various books about Imperial Airways we have numerous photographs of their flying boats and airlines operated. Also, have posters, and you'll see there's a link to the posters. So, one of my favourite posters that was issued for Imperial Airways around 1939-40 says, "To Australia in ten and a half days." Now, and these are things that were put up on like, the underground or in travel offices and so on. Now, today, if you think Australia in ten and a half days, you think you know, wow, that, that's an awful long time. But that was the selling point. 
And because basically why are airliners called airliners? And the reason why is that they were competing with ship liners. So again, some of the, one of the early Imperial Airways um, poster says, you know, the greatest airliners in the world. Airlines is two separate words. Because they, they're deliberately competing against the travel times of, of ships. So to, uh, a ship down to Australia would take them several weeks. Injury, ten and a half days, and fine. But then the other question people will say nowadays is, well, ten and a half days, that's a long time spent in an aircraft. You know, this is obviously done in stages and so on. And so one of the things that I, again, my favorite item in the collection that we have is that we have a very fine collection of timetables from the 20s and 30s. Now, you've got to bear in mind that because of the air, cost of air travel at that time, uh, air travel was restricted to a certain privileged few of society, only the very wealthy who could afford to fly. And so you literally, when you look at the photographs in the magazines, you have like the it girls at the time, very leading society figures, film stars, they're the only kind of people to afford to fly, uh, not the general kind of general public. So you have a, a privileged view of society to find in a, a quite a narrow, noisy space, traveling long distances. And so what the airlines did is that the process was, for example, if you were traveling on Imperial Airways, you would uh, go to um, Victoria Railway Station, and there you get basically a handy little leaflet which explains that at, at, at the railway station, not only you, not only your luggage, but also yourself would be weighed. And um, and it, then it says in brackets, you know, the dial would only be seen by the official. So Madam was a few pounds overweight. I don't know what one thing the social etiquette was, but you know, there's obviously a procedure. And then they would get on the train and they'd go to uh, down to Croydon, which at that time in the in the 20s, 30s was London's leading airport and get on the plane there. And as they were getting on the plane, they'd be given a kind of route map of where they were going. And again, one they say, one, we have this wonderful Imperial Airways route map um, from um, basically from Cairo to Egypt to Australia, from Cairo to Australia. And it folds out the length of a long table uh, and it's on, printed on both sides as you go along you see that they show very clearly a map of the route you're going to, and also various things to look out for as you go along, various archeological sites, historical sites, if you want to make a journey. So although they had no, um, at that stage, uh, in-flight movies, only very just very beginning, I mean, American Airlines, um, you have no, um, in British one, there's no like, in-flight entertainment, so this is the way to keep the passengers entertained with the, given things to look out for as they made their journey. And it just gives all that it's like called, called like the golden age of air travel. Um, because it was like, it's all new, it's all experimental and so on. Yeah. Not, not um, quite romantic in the days of EasyJet. No, no. I mean, I, I have to say people, you know, you wouldn't get the, you wouldn't get these kind of freebies on, <laughs> on low cost air travel today. But you, you bear in mind, you're, you're talking about a different, a whole different class of society you could afford to travel, you know. But yes, if you're missing your uh, package holiday this year, maybe you can check out the uh, the aeronautical like uh, website and see see the from the golden age of flying when everything was brand new and shiny. 
Yeah, I mean, on, I mentioned earlier the Douglas film, which you can see on the aerosociety.com thread movies. If you go to the second reel of that, the part two of that, um, you'll see at the very beginning some wonderful footage of early sleeper cabins um, in uh, in the American airliners and then uh, the dress they wore and so on, the, uh, and then their nightwear. But also towards the end of that film, they show the first, um, they show the first in-flight movie that was shown on, on the, which is a, a wildlife film called Babuna. I mean, it just gives you an idea of what it was like to travel at that time. Wow, that's incredible. Um, thank you for joining me today, Brian. It's been really interesting hearing about the variety of mediums and, and how far back your collection goes. Um, I definitely yeah, I'm going to have more of a poke around your website. I mean, the earliest book we have in the, in the collection dates from about 1515, um, and then it's 1517, so it's people, people look basically looking at the stars, you know, how can we get up, get there. Um, people looking at early flying models, which today are very much in vogue with drones and, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles that they're supposed to whiz around everywhere. Uh, and then people looking at, you know, early ideas of flight, was it possible? And then you, and say, literally about 1783, when you have it, man takes off and if you have an explosion of aeronautical literature in all forms, so the library has been literally recording all this from the very earliest days. And as you say, with technology, it will continue to. Yes, I mean that's the thing. You know, we're um, it's it's a wonderful, unique collection, um, one of the finest collections of its kind in the world. Um, and I think the Royal Aeronautical Society is very lucky to to have it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for joining us today, Brian.